Good morning, Sarah Heppler. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. There's a bit Look of it. geopolitical turmoil out there. Yeah, well, there's not just the geopolitical term, uh, turmoil. It was funny. I was uh, texting with Yale yesterday and, and spell check uh, changed it from like all this, these attack by terrorists to these attack by terriers. It was kind of funny. Oh, we got I wish. Left laugh out of that. Um, yeah, before we get onto that, I, I do want to, first of all, good morning, everybody. Uh, Sarah and I are here and very glad to be speaking with you. Um, we are going to have Yael Bartor, my dear friend who I've been, we've been, uh, including a link to her Twitter, uh, handle, which is, I think it's, it's exploding because, you know, out of, it sounds terrible, but out of adversity opportunity, she is on the ground in Tel Aviv. She happened to be there yeah. visiting with family. She's from Tel Aviv. And she has just, um, she's shattered and so angry. And she is just spending basically all day, every day, um, tweeting and putting links and writing stories. And she was on a Manhattan Institute uh, talk yesterday with with um, Martin Gurry. And it was, it's, she's just really, really devoting herself to trying to bring the story the best way that she can. I witness through what she knows. She's a former IDF soldier. She used to do media when she was in the military there. And she is my dear friend and she's going to come on with us this coming Tuesday. So get ready for that. I will forewarn you that she said to me yesterday, I'm done with political correctness. I'm done. I'm completely done. And I said, that's fine. She has to, you know, we all get to tell our stories the way we want. And um, so she will be here. So before we get into talking what we want to talk about today, it has been sort of all Israel, Gaza all the time around these parts and other parts. Um, Mm -hmm. I did want to talk a little bit and get your feelings or your observations about the story of the, um, how the story of the bombing of the hospital uh, in Gaza was reported this week. Do you have any, any thoughts on this? Well, uh, I was glued to Twitter that evening. I guess it was Wednesday night. And, you know, the first thing we heard was this immediate sort of thunderous, uh, you know, Israel had bombed a hospital and 500 were dead. And there was just such an explosive reaction to that. And then I watched in real time as the story started shifting. Um, But the story was shifting and like, it was really interesting because I was kind of watching both sides build their case in real time. Like no, like even as like Israel was coming out and saying, no, actually we think it was, it was, uh, you know, we think it was uh, Islamic, jihadist what was the name of the it's not hamas but it was the islami islamic jihadist yeah i i can't remember but anyway so they're making um they're making statements and i i got the sense for just the level of distrust of israeli media or israeli um israeli government or any messaging that was coming out of israel yeah, any messaging. So there was nothing you could do to sort of deflect. So there was just these these intractable storylines that were both evolving. And I I just it was it was just wild to watch in real time. And then of course, you know, uh, we know that the New York Times was you know changing headlines on the story, and it yeah. it, it was really crazy. 
You know, and I never, I, I really never thought, you know, one of the questions that comes out later is like, well, how did we know 500 immediately? Um, because <laughs> it's like, it's like the, the bomb happened or, or, you know, the explosion happened and then immediately we know 500. Well, like if you've been following the news in Israel, you know, that like that body count has been like, we first had hundreds and then 200s and then 400, 1300. Like it evolved over a series of days that you were getting a number. But all of a sudden we had 500. So, you know, part of the problem was we were dealing with a, people were trying to Zapruder film um, information that was like a, not a, a correct data set in the beginning. Right. So apparently what happened was that, and, and we understand we live in a very quick news environment. You don't like wait till tomorrow morning's edition of the New York Times to get the news. And apparently... Uh, a bulletin or a message went out to all of the news organizations in the U.S. and around the world from Hamas saying, excuse me, <coughs> that it had been uh, an Israeli missile or rocket had landed on this hospital and um, killed 500 people. Well, and leveled the hospital. So that it was hospital. just a very dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. So this is very dramatic. And obviously there is the fog of war and you don't really know what's going on. But the papers and we're talking about, let's just be clear here, New York Times, Washington Post, AP, Reuters, MSNBC, CNN. So pretty much the big ones went with this messaging. And that's how it was presented. I don't know if the headline in front of me, but it was, you know, Israel strikes hospital kills 500. Okay. Israel's like, well, we no. So they don't immediately come out and say, no, we didn't do this. They're like, no, we, we did not send anything over here, but let's check and see what happened. So they start to look and it turns out from what they believe that it was actually fired from Gaza and it wasn't a, what was it? A, it was a missile that like went awry and hit, they said, not the hospital, but a parking lot right next to the hospital. And in the morning, mm -hmm. it, this actually turned out to be the case. The hospital has like little to no damage. The parking lot is pretty much incinerated, but it's not like this big giant, it's, it's a smaller weapon. So, okay, what happens pretty much in real time, like you were saying, they're, they're, what happens is what they call stealth editing. Now, it used to be the case, if you run a terrible headline, the next day, or if you run an error, like the next day, you have to say, you know, we made a mistake, just like you do here very assiduously, Sarah, when we mess up, we, we say, it. well, that's not what happened. The New York Times just kept changing their headlines, like, well, Hamas says, like, well, could be, oh, Israel says, it was like, well, why, why did you run with this story that you got from Hamas? Isn't that a little interesting? Like you now know, you're pretty darn sure that for the past 10 days, we know that Hamas did go in and slaughter whatever it is now, 1,400 people in Israel, okay, and have 200 something hostages. So that's happened and you know that, but the minute it happens that something that looks pretty bad, which definitely does look bad for Israel, it's like, well, let's balance the scales here, right? You know, we, we want to tell both sides of the story. But why are you taking the word of Hamas? This is incredible. Well, they did. And I think I have to tell you, I know more than one person that canceled the strip subscriptions in New York Times yesterday. They're just like, forget it. And I, I have a question for you. 
serious question, and I guess also for our listeners. You know, we want to trust our news organizations, and yes, we all have our biases and we all have our opinions, and we really want to be careful about that. The New York Times is the paper of record. It has been for more than a decade, and it is, you know, I believe it's the biggest paper in the country. I don't know, USA Today may have a larger circulation, but it's like yeah, the premier know. paper, okay? How many times do they get things so spectacularly wrong and thus influence the climate of the country before we say, I don't trust you anymore? I actually think New York Times is a great paper and I think they're doing, uh, this is a horrible mistake and it's a mistake with consequences because as we saw, right. you know, um, it was amazing how fast, you know, embassy, like there was an embassy in, I believe like Beirut. Um, there were protests that happened, you know, like things exploded over this. So it's a, it's a mistake with real consequences. And because I've never worked in breaking news, I actually don't know what that desk looks like and, and what exactly went wrong. I, I just, I don't have insight into this. Um, I, what I, uh, and you know, I, I'm sure I have my own biases. I have my own friends who are reporting on this. I am good friends with Bacha Ongar Sargon. She's over at Newsweek. And she's been a talking head a lot lately um, about what's going on in Israel. And she, I have a clip of her, I retweeted uh, on my Twitter feed. I think she was on Fox, I'm, I'm not sure, I think it was Fox, where she basically broke this down really quickly. And she's livid, first of all, she's, she's so angry. And she said, you look at all these places, I'm just paraphrasing here, like again, Reuters, AP, New York Times, BBC has been awful. And they yeah. believe that Israel, because they are in air quotes, a white country and colonizers, they are the bad people. Now they are, they are ignoring the fact, and I've been learning this over and over lately, that more than half of Israel, of Israel are not European Jews that came, but Jews that came from other Arab countries, right? So there's a this Israzi is with African Arab, and then Ashkenazi is European. So she's saying, but still, the impression that a lot of the more liberal papers that we're talking about have is that Israel is the bad guys. They are the colonizers. And for 10 days, we have had sympathy, or a lot of people have sympathy, for or been very alarmed about what's been going on in Israel. But the minute there was an opportunity to say, aha, look, they really are the bad guys, they jumped. And I have to say, the alacrity with when, which with, with which with publication with which publications did makes me believe that statement because we are investigative journalists that is what we are supposed to do and if hamas today sent me a news bulletin or a press release telling me that this is what happened i would check that okay i would check that and say really you know because last week you went in and butchered 1400 people so now i am supposed you're supposed to be the voice that i trust i think it was a spectacular failing a spectacular I wonder failing what do we i wonder what the unrolling like who went first with the story cuz i'll bet you anything there was a there was a contagion effect there I somebody think it was went with that 
Somebody went with that story and everybody else felt like they had to, too. There is an interesting confirmation, you know, like I would be surprised if that news bulletin hits and somebody at that desk isn't saying, ah, do we believe this? And then it gets picked up in Reuters and then it's like, okay, yeah, we got to go with this. Um, but it's wrong. But that, but you can't, I, I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. I will say, I think I, I was surprised. There should have been a bigger correction. Like, like I actually can forgive the mistake. I understand it has terrible consequences. It's horrible. I'm not excusing the mistake. Sure, sure. I'm just saying I'm, I can see how this happens, but there should have been a bigger forensic on it. Um, you know, in, in, uh, TGIF today, uh, the Nellie Bowles rundown of the, the week's news, you know, she's comparing this to like, think about how they, they handled the Tom Cotton cop op-ed right right you know which had you know contestable facts on you know various word choices and you know there it went on for weeks and there was an explosion of uh a revolt inside the newsroom right and and, and the, do you and compare the, that to this for, which is yeah nothing. i mean and james bennett ends up getting and james, james know, bennett gets his ousted. head cut off and 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 barry you know is leaves uh, right. And it's not, I, I sometimes think, you know, you, you get this idea that you're too big to fail. I am very grateful for people. And it could be in my little corner of the Twitterverse holding these people's feet to the fire. I, I, I find it unconscionable. I, I, if I, I can't imagine, I mean, if I made a mistake that big as a, as a journalist, I would like send myself off into the wilderness for 40 days to kind of get my shit together. Um, I'll also say in terms of consequences. So I went the, out the other day, uh, a couple nights ago. I just really wanted to see what was going on at NYU because NYU is, you know, it's it's here in New York City. It's the second largest Jewish population in the world is, is New York City. There's been a lot of kerfluffles over at NYU, including this one law student. So I have to always quote Camille Foster and his mispronunciation of kerfluffle, kerfluffle. Um, uh, uh, you know, someone at the law school who was apparently the, the, was a signatory on this letter and then she lost her, she had a job offer rescinded on and on. We'll put links to that. We've already talked about that. Um, but I said, let me go and see if it's like a hotbed. Let me see what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. Law school quiet as a mouse, kids running around, Washington Square Park looks like it always looks the, you know, the skaters and people smoking pot and people doing weird interpretive dancers. But there was also a lot of sidewalk riding around the fountain and it was um, uh, queers for Palestine or, you know, right. uh, uh, gen no genocide in Palestine now. And there was a young guy with his chalk amending that to say like free Palestine from Hamas. So I talked to him for a little while and then I talked to another mm -hmm. yeshiva student, or actually I think he was in college. And he's like, they do realize, do the people writing this realize that if they were queer and they went to Gaza, what would happen to them? Do they realize what would happen in a lot of these countries that they would be killed or tortured? Um, and then I wound up speaking to a guy that did not want to give me his name, didn't want to be on camera, but he was walking through the park the other night, a couple nights ago, I think it was Monday, and going to the grocery store, and there was a big, there was a big um, uh, demonstration going on, 
pro-Palestinian, pro-Israel, fighting, not fighting, but yelling and burning of Israeli flags. And he, mm. uh, as an American Jew, he got a little hot under the collar, apparently, and he went up and said something. I don't know. He didn't tell me what it was <laughs> uh, to the, some Palestinian activists. They punched him in the face. So if we are at a moment in time that things are so hot and they are, we've seen stabbings. We saw, I don't remember what city it was, but a uh, a landlord went and stabbed. Oh, that's his, Chicago. That's Chicago, Chicago went and stabbed his his tenant and killed, stabbed and killed her six year old son because they were Muslim. If I'm getting that right, if we are if we are at a at a situation now where things are so hot, this is the time for responsible journalism. This is I have said this forty times on this show. It is our job to bring the temperature down. It is our job to look at what's going on. It can be absolutely terrible. We're talking about the murder of people and children and people getting bombed. It is our job to be super, super careful. And that the so-called best paper in the country, my paper that I grew up reading, gets it so wrong. And then that spreads around the world and maybe inflames tensions is a disgrace. It's a disgrace. I guess I've, I've, I've made my point here. Um, people can decide for themselves. And you know what? I, I, mm-hmm. I, I've had people on my social medias, on Instagram, people I know, I don't know this person very well. I think I knew him in college, who's very, very pro-Palestine, and he thinks what I'm posting is grotesque. Okay, that we can, we can disagree civilly, um, but okay. Yeah, yes, well, it was, a real, it was a real warning sign. Um, I mean, a real... Yeah, I, I, I'm. I, we'll see how things go forward from here. I mean, I, that it, it was a. They should be doing things differently in the newsroom. There's no question about that. It was horrible. Maybe they will. Maybe they will. Maybe maybe it's a, a wake up call. It's interesting. I haven't gone as we've I've spoken about before when there's an article in the New York Times, often that is maybe like a little questionable in their positions. People, their readers, always like, "Yo, yo, get it together!" <laughs> like the reader comments are always yeah. so kind of bracing and clarifying. So let's see what the readers think about this, um, about the, um, about the mistakes. So Sarah, what did we both do yesterday? We both, even though we're worlds apart, we're, we're about about 2000 miles between us. We both did the same thing yesterday. What was it? Well, we took a break from the, the cold, hard world and we went to the movies. We took, uh, we saw killers of the flower moon. Yes, we did on opening day. Uh, yeah. How packed was the theater or not packed for your showing? Not packed. No, it was about, um, I went at 445 on a Thursday and it was about, there were probably about, I mean, it wasn't probably like 30 people. Okay. I went at a 330 show and um, it was, you know, usually at that time at the theater I go to, uh, it's, there's going to be four people. It was about halfway filled. It was, it was mm-hmm. pretty good showing, uh, very, you know, it's a very long movie. I think it's three hours and 27 minutes, something like that. Yeah. It's three and, and a half hours. Was, yeah. it, you could have heard a pin drop the whole time. It was very, I think everybody was very engaged. And I know that cause I had people on other side, either side of me, which you never do in the movies anymore. You know, you go to these movies with the big chairs that lie back. At least I do. And you have, you feel like you're in your living room, but it was, um, yeah. Uh, you want to talk about this movie a little bit now you read the book, didn't you? 
Oh, sure. Yeah. The, the book, there's a 2017 book by David Gran, uh, an outstanding investigative writer that writes a lot for the New Yorker. Um, this was a book that he put out that, you know, if you don't know the story of this, it follows, um, you know, the Osage people in Oklahoma, the Osage tribe uh, found oil on their, on their land. in I think it's like 1897. And because of that, they become one of the, I mean, they become incredibly rich. I think it's the, doesn't, isn't it something like the richest people per capita in the country? Yes. In the country around, and, and this is now around the 19-teens, 1920s. Exactly. So from 1920, it, it's it's 1921 to 26 or something like that. There's something called the Reign of Terror, which is where people in the Osage tribe start to die mysteriously. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an alarming number. I mean, at first it's just okay, people are dying, but then, I mean, it, it, I don't think that they have an exact number, but I mean, it, it's like in the hundreds ultimately. Yeah. And it's not a huge tribe. Okay. You know, right. you're not talking, you know, 30,000 members. I don't know what it was, but yes. Um, it's funny. You made me just think of something. So, uh, Osage is in Oklahoma. They are not part of the five civilized tribes, which is interestingly, they mentioned that in the movie. So the five trivialized, five civilized tribes are the ones that were marched from like Georgia, Florida, Alabama area on the trail of tears, I believe in the late 1830s. And that was the Creek, my daughter's people, Creek, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Cherokee, and Seminole. They are not part of this group of tribes, five flip tribes. They they had their own. I, I can't remember where they came from. I have to look that up. Missouri. In any case, they were marched by the government and of course put on, you know, the government didn't take you and put you in Palm Springs, okay? They marched you to places where it was like rocky and horrible. And you know, you're if you've lived for thousands of years on one sort of environment, that's what you know how to do. You know how to fish, right? Or you know how to farm. Yeah. Well, they take them to another area. Well, uh, the government, uh, the joke was sort of on them, at least for a while, because this land was incredibly rich with oil. And uh, the Osage people were very smart. They said, well, okay, you can come drill here, but we get, we keep the mineral. You're going to pay us to do that. And then we keep a percentage of the, of the, of the money. Of course, it got all botched up with the government then saying, well, you guys are, you know, you just poor, ignorant savages. You guys can't take care of this yourself. So we'll, you know, we'll, we'll have these guardians to take care of it for you. But what I wanted to say before we get to the movie, I remember when I met Tim, which was in the 1980s, my daughter's dad, we went back to Oklahoma, we were hanging out. His dad, one of his dad's wives had been Osage and it was still talked about in the Osage, in the, in the 80s, like, well, you know, those Osage are rich. It was still, mm, this was now yeah. 50 years later. And I still think actually they still do get, um, members still do get some percentage of, of oil royalties is my understanding, but I could be wrong about that. But I remember it was sort of like, kind of like the gossip, like, ooh, you know, those Osage, they got money. Yeah. <laughs> so it's funny. Um, well, so the movie- by the way, the Osage, the Osage are originally from Kentucky. Kentucky. Okay. Uh, yeah. I so this- was- this follows okay. the story of Molly Burkhart uh-huh. uh, and her husband, Ernest. And, you know, there's an interesting thing about the sort of like who is the protagonist in this film, 
from what perspective this story is told. But anyway, back to the original book by David Gran, it follows the fam, the Burkhart family. Molly uh, loses all, like all three of her sisters and her mother. Um, and uh, this also tracks the rise of the FBI who are, there's ultimately a, a guy named Tom White who is dispatched to, you know, investigate this murder. Now, the way the book is written, I mean, there are very few heroes in this story. It's a, it's a, it's a really tough, and, and Tom White is one of them. I mean, he's one of the, like, good guys that ultimately, like, when I got to that part in the book where he comes in to finally investigate after years of, you know, people have just died. Nobody's paying attention. It's devastating. You don't know who to trust inside the community. You know, it's like, oh my God, thank God there's somebody that comes in. And I think when Martin Scorsese originally bought the material, when he originally optioned this and they got somebody to write the screenplay and Leonardo DiCaprio was attached, the idea was that Leonardo DiCaprio would play Tom White. And that would be the focus of the movie would be the, the, the white guy that came in and you mean like a white savior and something like that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And remember this is being done in the years of like, like, so this book comes out in 2017. So in 2019, uh, Martin Scorsese meets with members of the Osage tribe. And, you know, there's just a, there's a lot of, of like sensitivity around the idea of a white savior narrative and the Osage tribe, I think very understandably is like, you know, this story is not about our people. Like you've made a story about white people and we would really like to see a movie that was a lot more about the Osage, you know, trauma and drama and i think the the obvious answer to that would have been to make molly burkhart who is the sort of heart center of this story the protagonist but because leonardo dicaprio is attached to this film as the primary star the decision is made to make her husband ernest burkhart the protagonist of this film Um, and you know, he had a very small part in the book. So when I first heard that Leonardo DiCaprio was playing him, I was like, what? Because it's, and, and it is, I don't know how much of this movie to give away, how much of the story to give away. Yeah. Because part of the question is who can you trust? Who can you trust and who is complicit and what are they doing? And people that you think are good guys turn out to be bad guys. And Let's just say that Ernest Burkhart is somebody who is a complicated character. Um, how, yeah, how would we describe him? So I actually have not finished the book. I've been reading the book and kind of taking it with me on travels, and I just haven't had reading time. But I have been reading it lately, but I'm still sort of at the beginning. So let me tell you. The movie and who the good guys oh. and bad guys were was a real surprise to me. It's a real surprise. And I, that's why I, I like, don't want to ruin it because yeah, I don't in reading the book, right, right, I right. really was like, oh my God, I thought that guy was a good guy. Damn it. I, w- I want to say something about Leonardo DiCaprio. 
I found his performance unbelievable. I Fantastic. thought he was magnificent, magnificent. I'm not going to give it away either, but you'll know the scene. It's the very last scene with him and Molly Burkhart, who is played by Lily oh. Gladstone, who we talk about a lot here because she was she was in Reservation Dogs with my daughter, the scenes, and we'll put links to everything here. Um, that scene when she asks him that question, the last question she asks him when oh. they're sitting at the table, his face, his face for 25 seconds or whatever it did, I was like, oh my God, my God. I, I I was floored. I thought he was magnificent. And in terms of casting him, I saw, I don't really read movie reviews anymore. I used to, but I did click a little bit uh, on the New Yorker review of the film. I read like the first third of it or something. And the reviewer said something like, why did they give it to, you know, to uh, Ernest Burkhardt, brand brained Ernest Burkhardt. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty good line. Um, brand brained, but... But what is it? What is that word? Bran brain, like Bran the cereal, Bran brain, oh, like just brand talking about Yeah, because he's he's, he's not was. the sharpest not tool the sharpest in the knife. shed. No, he is not. But I have to say, by doing that, you then also really allowed his wife Lily's character to develop. You you could see them in tandem. You know, yeah. they. They could play off of each other, the ups, the downs, the beliefs, the disbeliefs, the trust, the distrust, the actual love, and then what you think mm -hmm. is love. I, I, okay, I haven't had very many movies that I saw them and I wanted to watch them immediately again. I had that happen with Mulholland Drive and I actually did. I saw it like at night on a tape or a DVD or something and got up the next morning, instead of working, I sat in front of the television and, and watched it again. I would see this movie immediately again. Not so much because I mean, it's the greatest movie ever made, but because I want to absorb the way this story was told and the people in it. And I was I'm 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 almost without words yet, so I'm glad you're here with me, Sarah, to fill in what I at the moment cannot. Well, yes, I loved this film. I may not have loved it as much as you, but I will say that it's three and a half hours. I was absorbed the entire time. It yeah. did not feel too long. I was completely in it. Uh, I think Leonardo DiCaprio is fantastic. I think this is one of his best performances. You know, he can sometimes seem like a little bit of a man boy to me. Well, and actually his character is a little man boyish. Maybe that's why it works. But sometimes he looks like a kid in adult clothes, like in big yes. boys clothing to me. Yeah. And um, <laughs> especially when he tries like some of the more ambitious kind of like character roles that each. Anyway, I, I think he is fantastic in this. Um, the decision to focus on, you know, and, and Lily Gladstone is, is, she's very good. Um, she has a, that's a tough role because she is compromised. Like she's getting sicker and weaker. Um, she is really good. I will say there was this one moment where the narrative kind of like, like suddenly the perspective shifts, shifts into her brain. And it, I did kind of wish like, oh, what would this movie be from her perspective? Um, hmm. 
But, you know, look, one of the sillier things you can do is to see a movie that is a beautiful, rich movie and say it should have been this other thing. Like, I, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not the movie I, I, I wanted. Or it's not the book I wanted. It's not the movie I wanted. You know, I, I, I'm just saying I would have loved to have seen this movie from her perspective. That's not what this movie is. I see. Uh, I don't, I don't know that that's true. I, 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 and I could be just as my POV here, but I felt like it was sort of told prismatically. Like you got it from different perspectives. Yes. I think Leonardo DiCaprio has a bit more screen time for sure, but she is very, she is very watchful. And that is sort of part, you know, they say that at the very beginning, beginning. like they don't talk much, but don't, don't think that they are not thinking and not watching. That would be a mistake you make as a, you know, white person coming here to take advantage of the Osage because they know and they are watching. And I, that is who she was. Um, I watch watchful is a good word. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and that's part of what I'm trying to say about, I don't want it to sound like, um, like half-hearted praise. It's just, it is, there is something, the performance demands a certain mute mutedness. Um, right. But she makes up for it in luminosity. Wow. I mean, the camera adores her. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't want to shift gears too fast here, but I do want to mention another movie uh, that came out <clears throat> that had its New York New York premiere this week. May I shift for a second? Sure. Okay. So a daughter, my daughter uh, was the set decorator on a film called Fancy Dance. It's a lot of the same people from Reservation Dogs, uh, a woman that did writing and directing there. She wrote and directed this, um, Erica Tremblay, and it stars Lily. And it is about um, a woman whose sister disappears and they are trying to find her and she's she's taking care of her sister's teenage daughter who she's actually grown up with. They've all grown up together. This is a small independent movie. Um, I saw it the other night at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. It was part of a kind of a lesbian and gay film festival, which is funny because it's not really a theme except Lily's character in the movie does like is in love with this uh, exotic dancer, but it's not really the a theme of the movie at all, but I'm right. glad that they had it in there because this, I think is the best movie I've seen this year. It's called. Oh, Fancy really? I, I, I have not seen a movie in so long that did everything to my eye. Right. In terms of the pacing, each character was there for a reason. Each one had an arc. You didn't know exactly what was going to happen. It was surprising. It was beautiful. The the, it, the acting was stratospheric. I went with uh, Matt Welch and we sat together. First of all, I have to say, so my daughter's dad, Tim, he acted in films and TV. And when we would go to the theater and we'd see his name like scroll up, it was always like so like, you know, oh, there's Tim. When Tava's name scrolled up, I know for a fact if tim were still here in that theater he would have been like he would have screamed and not cared at all and i sat there weeping for the both of us with Mm. the immense immense pride and joy and it's also a really hard and contemporary native story about people we're talking about in killers of the flower moon people disappeared people were murdered people were poisoned and the government did jack shit 
in many cases until, of course, the FBI rides rides in with their white hats and they kind of do, yeah. you know, they, they get some justice here. But it, it, it these are stories, you can read these stories easily. Many Native women are killed and it's just, they're like forgotten about. Um, it is a magnificent small film. I, I don't think you can see it yet. That's the thing. It's just sort of at the festival circuit. But when and if you get a chance to see this movie, oh, I was going to say, after after I cried sitting there during the credits, Matt turned to me and he said something like, I don't even know how to categorize what she does. Like, I don't, I don't, I can't even explain what her acting is like in this movie. It's, it's meaning Lily Gladstone, meaning Lily Gladstone. And, um, so if you get a chance, if this movie comes to your part of the world, uh, certainly if it, if it becomes available online, I will, I will put a link to it. I'll put what links I have here. It was, it's just amazing. Just amazing. Amazing. So can I say like a superficial comment about her, um, that doesn't seem like it, like it just, she is a normal weighted woman. Yeah. yeah and yeah. She's, I yeah. really like that. I know that is not, that it's, it's only a small part of what she can do, but it's like, I, I think I was, I was reflecting a little bit on a century of film where even normal weighted people were played by incredibly thin people. Like, like the strangeness of that. It, we we went through an era like in the you know, I guess late eighties and nineties where like you know Michelle Pfeiffer was what a movie star looked like you know these just tiny tiny little people mm-hmm. and you know or Audrey Hepburn which was just gorgeous but you know and maybe that's what we felt we wanted or that's who was cast I mean okay I'm gonna put a plug in here I should have put it in the in the earlier but I will uh, I'll put it in the show notes so I have a big piece coming out tomorrow in Free Press basically about. Um, my watching natives in film for the past 35 years mm-hmm. and where they've come from, starting with Will Sampson, Tim's dad, who was big chief and went to the cuckoo's nest to now here we are in killers of the flower moon and reservation dogs. But you know, it used to be the case that um, natives couldn't get any work. I mean, I remember this distinctly, like Tim would go, he'd hear about it, like a, an ad, like an ad for a Folgers commercial. And he'd like go and go up and they'd be like, why would we cast an Indian in a, in a coffee commercial? It's like, what, Indians don't drink coffee? Like, we can't just play a dad? And now, well, so yeah. I'm just going to say, it's a little bit like what you're saying about Lily being a normal sized woman. We've gone from where we have these little narrow things of who we're going to cast in these roles yeah. to like, like, let's, wow, this is, this is super interesting too, you know? So um, I saw Killers of the Flower Moon at Alamo Draft House, which is a, a really great chain if you don't know it. Um, I, I don't know exactly how many cities it's in at this point, but it's it's in many places across the country. It's here. But they are very good about um playing stuff before the the movie comes out. You know, like I, I generally always get there early because there'll be some sort of archival footage or something interesting that's played. That, that is tied into the theme of the actual movie. Well, when I came in yesterday, they were playing a documentary called like a brief history of indigenous people in film. And one of the things that it showed, we, I mean, like, like not only could native people not get cast um, in a Folgers commercial, they couldn't get cast in movies about native people. Oh, <laughs> like, no, no, no. Like there is all these movies from the 40s, 50s, and 60s where white people are playing native roles. Uh, 
Well, there's, do you, you know, Charlton Heston playing Geronimo. Well, um, we had it up until the nineties when you had, um, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember? I think we may have talked about this last time. I can't remember, but the Indian with a tear, the commercial where like you were probably too young, but they had this commercial. I think it came out in 1970 and it was this, you know, native guy rowing a canoe and there's garbage everywhere. And then he's standing on the side of a freeway and they see someone in a car window and he throws out some garbage and he turns I do to remember the camera this. and there's the tear. Well, that was played. By a Sicilian from Louisiana who Shit. took the name Iron Eyes Cody, uh, who acted in films from like 1930 on, always playing an idiot. But I will say, okay, check it. We used to see Iron Eyes Cody. Like we would go to different little native functions out in California, sometimes like in the valley, like the opening of a car dealership and they'd want some there. And he would be there with like his dusty wig all, all askew. And the natives were super nice to him. It's like, yeah, he's some old dude that got a gig and you know, it's his gig. It's fine. But yeah, Tim, Tim was cast as a lead in this movie, War Party, uh, um, in 19... We filmed, they filmed in 1988. The two other leads in the film, all three natives, well, one's supposed to be half native. Tim, Full Blood Creek, Billy Worth, who is basically like Russian Jewish and Irish. Right. He he was in he was in Lost Boys. Oh, and the third, who was supposed to be half, is Kevin Dillon, brother of Matt. Okay. No like, way. Kevin Dillon yes, was yes, cast yes. as an yes, 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 <gasps> yes. And we all were up in we were all in Blackfeet, Black. We were on Blackfeet Country in Browning, Montana. We were all living at this like brand new motel that they kind of built because the film was coming. It's called the War Bonnet Lodge, and there was like still drywall sitting in like four by eight drywall in the hallway. And Kevin was there. Kevin's got curly hair, and I remember yeah, they would like be straightening his hair. And I'm like, well, if you want to use my blow dryer, it like gets it straight. It's, I mean, it was fun. It was a great, it was, it was, he, he was terrific. And so was Billy, but it's like, yeah, like they couldn't or wouldn't. I guess I, I remember so, like so many times Tim hearing, well, we can't find a native for the parts. Like you are not looking, but things have changed. And you're going to read about that in my piece, which isn't out till tomorrow, but um, I'll put a show a link to it when we, um, once it's up. So after the fact, you can read it if you want. So anyway, yeah, Natives in Film. We are at an interesting time right now, and I hope to see more opportunities. There are more opportunities. And in fact, Fancy Dance, not only it is all Native, but it's all women, Native women. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's That's cool. absolutely glorious. So, um, well, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be one of the fall's big films. It'll probably be debuting at number two only because I don't know about where you saw it, but where I saw it, every theater I passed seemed to be playing a Taylor Swift song. Like some Taylor Swift song was, was, uh, drifting out of it because that concert movie is out. So Taylor Swift's concert movie eras is out and it is like dominating the, uh, the box office right now. And so it was playing in like three different theaters. I yesterday, first of all, I would have probably no interest in watching this though. I don't know. Maybe I could be convinced, but I do know that on the reason round table at the end, um, every week they say, what have you been consuming? What kind of media? And I believe Peter Suderman, who's at reason said he watched it and it was a lot of Taylor Swift. And it's like two hours and 45 minutes long or something. So in any Well, case. I mean, to be fair, there is truth in advertising there. I mean, like it's a Taylor Swift concert movie. So it would be yeah. entirely yeah. Taylor Swift. Okay. Yeah. 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 I saw um, 
uh, the, what the the trailers I saw yesterday, there was a new John John Woo directed movie, Silent Night. Oh, oh yeah, with Joel Kinnaman. Yeah, oh, oh with Joel Kinnaman from name? The Killing. I love him. Yeah. Oh, I ha- I okay. Joel Joel Kinnaman, hit me Kinnaman, up. Kinnaman, Kinnaman. Yeah, he yeah, hotness, so major hotness, hotness. Yeah. Oh, major hotness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> No, for sure. Actually, my college boyfriend looked like him. I mean, way back oh, in the okay. day. But yeah, yeah. really. Tell. Yeah, don't tell. Um, but hey, Joel, listen. Hey, maybe we should get him on the show. <laughs> I've interviewed him before. I interviewed him for Salon. And I remember our conversation got cut super short. I can't remember what, what happened. Like he was late calling me or whatever. And he was like, you know, I'm so sorry. I'll call you tomorrow. And he never did. But like for a day, I lived in this world that like he was going to call me the next day and we were going to continue the conversation. Oh, Um, man. Um, But actually, that looked really good. It was very kind of a John Wick like, you know, I don't know. It was it it looks to be like, you know, somebody kills someone in his family. I'm not sure it might be his kid or something. And just basically it's like kill everyone, kill everyone everyone. And it's just going to be this nonstop kind of John Wick. I love the John Wick movies. Love, 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 love. So, um, you know, I've never seen them. Oh girl, you have got some nice evenings of watching to do. No, they're great. I, as soon as they actually, I think the last time I ran out to a movie to watch it, the day it came out, it was the last John Wick movie because I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. So I have to watch John Wick marathon man. And I still haven't Mm -hmm. watched Thor Ragnarok. So I've got, I've I've got my list. Okay. I know. Thor Ragnarok is one. It is so, so funny. It is so full of joy. It is so joyful. Like when you're maybe either having a great day and you want to even make it a better day or when you're having a bad day, watch Thor Ragnarok. Who, who, which by the way, is directed by, what's his name? Taiki Watiti? Taiki Watiti. Taiki Watiti. Oh my God. Co-created Reservation Dogs with Sterling Harsha. Oh, that's right. He's the co-creator. So yeah, we're gonna put a nice big chunky gonna the, the trailer to Thor Ragnarok in this in these darn show notes. Which you know, if you're not re- reading them, if you are not a, a paid subscriber, which of course if I probably will have trimmed, uh, we were on the paid part now, but maybe not. Maybe we'll just make this a long, uh, long just for the freebie listeners, you freeloaders. We do have some pretty good, pretty good episode notes. I think at least I think they're kind of sexy. So tune into that. Uh, speaking of sexy, Sarah, what have I yes. done for you? What have I you done for you? I have took one. fallen on a sword and that sword was named the golden. Hello, smoke them. You've got them listeners. If you are hearing this, that means you have just listened to the free portion of our, oh, I don't know, bi-weekly episodes with Sarah Hepla. Sarah Hepla, who's just so busy right now, she could not record this little uh, interim moment for you. Um, we're happy to have you here as a free subscriber. If you'd like the entire episodes, please go over to smokeempodcast.substack.com and sign up and subscribe. Then you will get the full episodes every week, plus some special things we drop for you on the weekends and our monthly, our first Sunday Zooms. Again, to get the full fig, that is smokeempodcast.substack.com. Thanks.